If you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from John chapter 4. I'll be reading, it's a fairly lengthy passage. It's printed also uh, in your bulletins as well. John chapter 4, and I'll begin with verse 4. Now he, that's Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And this is God's word. Now for the past month, we've been uh, in a series. Uh, we've been talking about the importance of the temple. It seems very abstract. Uh, but it's not. It's actually very concrete. It's actually very important. And here you see a very interesting conversation that teaches us the important truths, very important truths about who Jesus is, 
what he came to do. And yet in the context of this conversation is this talk about the temple. Where do you worship? This passage is going to give us key, the key to life, the key to renewal in life, living water. But isn't, he doesn't do this before talking about the temple, worshiping in spirit and in truth. So we're going to see four things. The gospel gives us, one, a new agenda. Why? Because the gospel gives us a new life. The gospel gives us a new life. Why? Because the gospel gives us a new center. The gospel gives us a new center. Why? Because the gospel gives us a new love, a new agenda, a new life, a center, a love. First, we're going to look at the gospel. Jesus gives us a new agenda. Verse 4, Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee, and he passes through Samaria. He actually goes out of his way to Samaria. So he's crossing ethnic boundaries. In verses 6 and 7, he sits down. Whenever a rabbi is sitting down, he's in teaching posture. He's teaching. In ancient times, the teacher didn't stand. The teacher would sit. And yet, he's teaching a woman. Rabbis in those ancient times never taught women. So he's crossing gender boundaries. He's crossing social boundaries. In verse 7, it's not just a woman. It's a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were half-breeds, half-bloods. They were considered impure. So now Jesus is crossing cultural boundaries. In verse 9, the woman herself says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Why? Because there was this religious divide. They were fighting religious wars. Not too foreign for us today, right? We're in the midst of heavy religious wars in our world today. Jesus is crossing religious boundaries. In verse 18, Jesus says, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the person you're now with is not your husband. In ancient times, you traveled to get water. There were, the irrigation systems were poor. So water was needed for everything. You needed water for cooking, you needed it for cleaning, you needed it for bathing, for drinking. In those days, women, they always traveled together, but this woman travels alone at a very, very odd time, the hottest time of the day, when nobody else would be traveling. No one else would travel with her. Why? She's had five husbands, a total of six men. So she's a social outcast. She's a moral outcast. This woman is out of every ring. Every racial ring, gender ring, society ring, moral ring, religious ring. She's out of every ring that a typical rabbi would be engaged in. But Jesus Christ is coming to her, goes out of his way to go to her and says, You are in. I have come for you, specifically for you. I had to come for you. What does this teach us? New life is not built on your achievements. It's not built on your, even your moral record. New life is not built on your abilities. Look, the woman doesn't, is not praying. It's not like she's praying on her way to the mountain. She's not looking for God. She's not seeking God. She's not acknowledging God. She's not thankful for God. She's, in fact, she's running from God. And Jesus goes out of his way to seek her. What does that tell you? Jesus Christ is telling us there is no ethnic boundary, no cultural boundary, no gender boundary, no social boundary, no religious boundary, no moral boundary that I will not cross for you. And when you see the boundaries that Jesus was willing to cross for you, you will be able to cross boundaries for others. The gospel gives us a new agenda. The second point 
is uh, the gospel gives us new life. That's why we have a new agenda. We have a new life. Now, this conversation in verses 7 to 15, it seems very choppy for us as you read it. It's almost like a syncopated, almost kind of asynchronous conversation. But it would have made absolute sense to the two people who are engaged with with each other in this text. Jesus and the Samaritan woman made absolute sense to each other. Jesus is saying this, I'm going to give you something that's more than just forgiveness, more than just absolution. I'm going to give you a fresh, more than just a fresh start. I'm going to give you a new life. Because water, the very nature, what they're talking about, what does water do? Water cleans. Water brings newness. If you're parched, if you're dying, water brings newness. In the Old Testament, water is synonymous with the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? It brings, he brings life, new life. Our bodies are made, composed mostly of water. And so our bodies are constantly craving water. There's this tremendous need for water. They're crying out for water. Before even you realize that you're thirsty, you're actually thirsty. When you dehydrate, you get headaches. I get those all the time. You get a dry throat. But eventually, what happens if you go too long without water, there's lots of heat. There's a sensation of your body is literally burning from the inside out. There's heat. There's pain. There's suffering there's death. Jesus is saying here, when he's offering this woman living water, he's saying, I have something that your soul needs even more than your body needs water. Because the Bible says that if God is not the center of our souls, and you place any other thing, in any given moment, you place any other thing, whether it's a relationship or your own beauty your wealth, material goods, if those things sit at the center of your soul and you try to, you're you're doing this out of a thirst, you're thirsting. And so what we do is, our solution is, I need more of those things. If you're thirsting, your thirst leads you towards intimacy. I need more intimacy. If you want relationships, I need more relationships. I need this person's approval and this person's approval and that person's approval. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your parents. In this crowd, your parents have a big part to do with that. It could be your boss because that craving that we have for the, for the love of our spouses or the love of our parents, which are big and very strong in this particular culture, gets transferred to other authority figures. We need, we crave that promotion for that reason because it means approval and we thirst after it. We're trying to feed a thirst. That's what the Bible's saying. And the Bible says that if you continue to do that, your soul will corrode until it dies. You will die of thirst. You will never be able to quench that thirst. But Jesus says in verse 10, if you drink of him, in you becomes a spring of life. That's a remarkable statement, a spring of life. In other words, if your hope is not in Jesus, you will place your emotional and psychological, even your physical well-being into something else. Whenever you do that, your emotional, psychological, social, relational, spiritual, all those things into something else, you're worshiping that thing. That's the nature of worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So if you're pouring that into something else, you are worshiping that thing. That thing is called an idol. You're saying, this is a thing that will satisfy me. You're looking at, when we pray, we do that. We say, God, I want this. You're looking at satisfaction with a capital S, and you're saying, I need this to satisfy me. When you do that, there's this burden 
that's placed on those things. Because it's, then, then it's, you're asking for more than a job. You're asking for meaning. You're asking for significance. It's more than just a partner. It's more than just a friend. It's more than just a spouse. You have a great desire for a cosmic oneness and intimacy. So when you lose that job, or you lose that, your relationship breaks apart. You're not just losing a job or a relationship. You're losing significance. You're losing a sense of worth, and your life just blows apart. What our immediate reaction is, I need to find something else to replace that. What are you doing? You're thirsting. That's the thirst. You're burning inside. When you don't have it, there's torment. It's like hell. This woman in verse 15, she says she she wants this water. She wants to stop taking that trip alone. She wants to stop risking the shame and, and, and experiencing that sense of outcastness. So she says, give me this water. I want this water. Jesus' response, he gets very personal. Go call your husband and come back. Why? What he's really saying is, you see, your heart has gone bad. Your heart has gone bad. You've had five husbands, and the man you're currently with is not your husband. You've had six men. The number six in the Bible, from the Old Testament into the New, is a very important number. It means it's it's the number of imperfection. It's the number of incompletion. It's the number of restlessness, dissatisfaction. This woman comes at the sixth hour, has been through six men. She's tired. It's not just a physical fatigue. She's restless. It's not a physical or emotional restlessness. There is a cosmic thing that's going on, and the Bible is saying we are all experiencing that restlessness. We're thirsting. Jesus is saying, we're asking, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? Because I can give you a lasting hope. I can give you an eternal joy, an eternal satisfaction. You will have a spring of life that overflows inside. I can give you an undying love, an undying intimacy. Now, this woman, it's more than she asked for, right? More than she bargained for. She says, hmm, I can tell you are a prophet. Now, I'm not spiritually thirsty, I worship. I'm not spiritually thirsty. I'm physically thirsty. I worship. I worship over here. You guys say we got to worship over there. Jesus is saying, yes, you worship. But you see, the thing is, your problem from the get-go is you're worshiping in the wrong place. You have placed your worship in this place. It's almost like a, it, he's, he's speaking on two different levels here. He's saying your worship, the problem is not the fact that you worship. Everybody worships. The problem is, you're placing your worship in the wrong place. That's why you're thirsty. That's why you're dissatisfied. Ain't no amount of knowledge you have that's going to change that. That's a cosmic thing. That's not an educational thing. That's not a a, a theology embeddedness thing. That is a relational issue. That's why you need men in your life. You think love. You get it. You go to worship. You go to a place. You understand these things to some degree, and yet your worship is completely displaced. 
You, that's, you think that love, the attention of these men, that's going to give you a sense of worth and significance, but it's in the wrong place. And so you're leaning on these men. You're leaning on this type of intimacy. You're leaning on sex, and it's corroding your soul. It's not just distorting your social life. It's distorting your inward life. You are corroding inside, and that's why you thirst, and you will never be satisfied. If you pour into yourself, you are always going to be thirsty. But when you pour into Jesus, he says, you will have a spring of life that will well up. It will overflow. You know what a spring is? You can't stop a spring. You can't plug a spring. You can't plug or stop a river. You can't stop a fountain. It is unstoppable. Now later, we see this, verse 28, 29, the woman, she runs back to the town, to the very people that she's been avoiding, to the very people who've been avoiding her. She's been, she runs back to that town. Why does she run back to them? It's overflowing. There's new life. Her thirst has been quenched. Her search is over. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. The text says she left her water jar behind, the very thing that's causing the sag in her shoulders, the very thing that's causing her fatigue. There's this new source of worth in her life. She's received new life. What does water do? Water quenches. Water cleans. Water refreshes. Water makes you cool. Water strengthens. She, know, she left her water jar behind, the very thing that's causing her fatigue. Why? Because she's been filled. She's got the water of life in her. She knows, you see. Why does she get this new life? It's because she has a new center. What, what I mean by that, verses 15 to 26 teaches us, you see a transition here because they're talking on two levels, and Jesus now gets very personal. The talk about water, he goes into worship. Verses 15 to 26, Jesus is teaching us about how to worship. Because really what he's saying is that it's only through Jesus can you truly worship as the end, as the ultimate place where you can reside with God, where you will find that satisfaction, that, that love, that intimacy, that's what you've been thirsting for all your life. Real intimacy with God, a real relationship with God, it can only happen through Jesus Christ. It's like this. If you want, you've got all, this, all these tools, good tools, good-looking tools, right? You have a phone. You have nice appliances in your home. They mean nothing. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter if there's no power in the home. You need to be connected to, to have that kind of power. You need to be connected to the power grid. A whole city may have power, but if you are not plugged in, if you are not connected, it doesn't matter what you have in your house, it will not work because there is no power. And I'm not just talking about, oh, well, I can, I can sense God's power. I'm not talking about just sensing God through nature. Now, I went to school in New England. And every year I go back. I go back for various reasons, right? I'm a big Red Sox fan. I go back. I catch a game every year. I, I don't think I missed a game at Fenway over like, you know, last 15 years. I go back at least every year. But usually one of those times, several of those times what I do is uh, I'll go up on a hike up, up near New Hampshire, the White Mountains. Near the White Mountains, uh, there's this nice, uh, a very short hike. It's a pretty, fairly easy, decent hike. When you get to the top and you look out, there is no way that you cannot look out and sense God as creator. It's humbling. You recognize his grandness. You recognize his greatness. It's humbling. You see that. But that doesn't mean you're communicating with him. That doesn't mean you're plugged into him. 
you see? You can sense God as creator. You can think about God, recognize his greatness. That doesn't mean you know him. You understand? Because the only way you would know him is you have a real connection with God, a connection between yourself and God. Jesus is talking to this woman. The woman says, sir, give me this water. Give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here to draw water. And he says, go, call your husband. She says, well, I don't have any husbands. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living right now is not even your husband. So what you're saying is true. Now, he's not trying to offend her. He's not trying to embarrass her. It's just a conversation between the two of them. He's not trying to embarrass her. He's trying to show her to diagnose the real problem, to show her, stop running. This is who you really are. Here is the fundamental problem. Now, she looks at him, and she says, I can see you're a prophet. I have some questions for you. You're a prophet. I have some questions for you. Where do we worship? Now, you think this conversation is very choppy, but it's not. What she's asking is, He's saying to her, you, I'm getting to the fundamental problem of your displaced worship in your heart. And she says, where do I go? I want this. Where is the real temple? Now, we've been learning that the temple is this place where heaven and earth meet. Ancient temples no matter what faith, what religion, that's what it was. It's, a, it's usually the highest point in the largest part of the city the highest point because they literally, uh, you know, I was listening to this one lecture by Edmund, Dr. Edmund Clowney. One of the things he says is if you go to these temples, I've never really been to one. It's actually one of my, like, life goals. I want to go down to, like, the Mayan temples and things like that. When you go there, they said that they get to a point where the blocks, the stairwell gets too high for a single person to walk. And the reason why is because that is where God is supposed to come down. It's where heaven and earth meet, Right? That's what a temple is. That's what we've been learning. It's where you get access to God. It's where you meet with God. It's where you come to know God. So that's where you learn about God. That's where you give because God is a giving God. That's where you sacrifice because God requires sacrifice for reconciliation. This woman is saying, yes, I've had five husbands. Yes, I get it. My worship is off. My center is off. My life is a mess. I'm out of orbit. My life is out of control. My life's a mess. You get it. You see me. You must be a prophet. How can I find it? Where is the center? Jesus is trying to get personal. Let's talk about your husbands. Let's talk about this, this thirst that you have for love and for men in your life. He's talking about what you need, and she needs it. She knows she needs it. She starts to talk about the temple. You see that connection? And what she's saying is, where is it? I get it. I've been searching all my life. I can't find it. Where is it? See, the Samaritans, they didn't believe that the Jews had a true sense of God. That's the religious war. They believe that God dwells in Samaria, that their temple is the real temple, the true temple. And so only their prophets could be the real prophets. Jesus blows it out of the water because here she says, I can see you are a Jew. I can see you are a prophet. Her paradigm has just exploded. Because if that's the case, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm off. If you're a prophet, then wait a second. What does Jesus say? He's very careful. He doesn't say, God is spirit, you don't need, you don't need a temple anymore. God's everywhere. That's not what he says. He's very careful. He says, woman, a time is coming and is now come when you will worship God, the Father, 
neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, I used to think that that meant that that means, uh, you know, God is spirit, and so you can worship him anywhere. If you have Jesus, you can worship him anywhere, essentially, right? And it's yes and no. Because that's not, that couldn't be what he meant here. And the reason why is he says a time is coming. God has always been spirit. God has always been everywhere. You could always worship God everywhere. But he's saying something very specific here. He says a time is coming and has now come. What he's really saying is this. He said before, you used to worship God in this temple. Other people worship God in that temple here or there. But a time is coming when all temples are going away. There's going to come a time when I replace all the temples. The reason why we know that is because in the gospel according to John, whenever Jesus refers to a time, the hour that is coming, he's talking, he's always referring to his death. He's always referring to the cross. The hour has come, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for the Son of Man to be lifted up. He's talking about his death. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying the time is coming for me to die. And when I die, I will replace all temples. It's remarkable. Verse 25 to 26, that next set of verses right there, it's remarkable. The woman says, wow, one day, The one whom God sends, the Christ, he will come. He will explain this all. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. In the Greek, that's ego eimi. It's a very, very important phrase because it's translated into the words, I am. It's the same phrase that when God told Moses in the Old Testament, I want you to go and I want you to go to the Pharaoh and tell them that to let my people go so that they can worship me in the desert. Moses says, the people, they're not going to believe me. What do I tell them when they ask me who sent me? What do I tell them? He says, I want you to tell them, I am sent you. The I am has sent you. Here Jesus says, I am. One day the Messiah will come. He will explain everything. Jesus says, I am. He's saying, you want the temple because you want to connect to God. You want access. But you're impure. You're outcast. You're out of every ring. But you need that. I am the access that you need. I am the very presence of God. That fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt, I am that fire. I didn't say that. The author of Hebrews said that. The author of Hebrews said that he is the radiance of God. The radiance, the the exact representation of God. I am the spiritual reality that you've been craving. The reason why you're sleeping with all these other men, you're still looking for him. You're looking for the him, the ultimate him, the ultimate man who's going to give you worth and significance and meaning and joy and satisfaction. That's why you're turning to sex. It's why you're turning to intimacy on an earthly level. It's why you're having all these bad, broken relationships in your life. None of your loose ends are tied up. You're falling apart. Your orbit is off. Your center is off. You're falling apart. You're giving up on your relationships. You're turning away from people. Now, a lot of us, we say, you know, I've given up on this. I've given up on men. I've given up on women. I've given up on this. I'm going to pour my heart into my work, into my career. You're thirsting for approval. You're thirsting for love, real love. The problem is, it's not that you're asking for too much. You're asking for too little. 
he says. There is a greater sense of worth that you need, and it's real. There's a greater reality, a real reality. There's a greater approval that you're looking for. There's a greater love that you're looking for. You're thirsting for it on an earthly level. C.S. Lewis says, if you can't find it here on earth, it must exist, but maybe it's something earth cannot provide. Jesus says, I am. My love is the love that you've been looking for all your life. That word I am is a very special word, a name for God that God reserved only for the people that he treasures, that he loves. Jesus Christ is saying here, I am the temple. I am the connection to God. I am the ultimate access to God. The moment he died, what happened? That veil was torn from top to bottom. Last week, we talked about the Holy of Holies. Between the Holy of Holies and the outer courts, there was a thick veil. It's like a door. It's a passage because it's so thick. It's not your, your flimsy curtain. It's a very, very thick carpet rug, like a very, very thick curtain, right? One time each year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And this veil, this door that represents between God's presence and the outer court where the people were, when Jesus died, it was that veil that was torn from top to bottom. The doorway was blown wide open, essentially. God is sitting in the Holy of Holies, and that veil was torn. It's as if someone didn't start from the bottom and grabbed it from the bottom and tore it up. That would be us from the bottom, right? We would be forcing our way in. That's not what's happening. It's as if somebody from the top, from heaven, grabbed a curtain and tore it apart so that now we would have access. You see that? Jesus is saying to this woman, that hour is coming, and it has come. When I die, you will no longer need a temple. I've become your temple. The central place where you worship is not geographical. It's relational. I am the access point. The earthly temple had an altar. We talked about this. And on the altar, there was blood. There was a sacrifice. Now there's no altar. Why? Because Jesus' body is the altar on which his blood was spilt, the sacrifice was made. The earthly temple had a candelabra, a giant set of candelabras that would light up the entire side of Jerusalem from the temple, essentially. There's no longer any candelabra. Why? Because Jesus Christ declares, I am the light of the world. In the earthly temple, there was consecrated bread, Why? Because bread in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, represents fellowship with God, life with God. You need bread to live, right? Life with God, fellowship with God. You break bread with others. That's what it represented. There's no longer any bread. Why? Because Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the altar. He is the light. He is the bread. He is access. He is the true temple. He is the true center. That means he is life. That means that's from him you learn, you gain wisdom. From him, that's you learn how to give. From him, you learn how to sacrifice. All of life revolves around Jesus. He is real life. That's where the joy is. That's where the life is. That's where the satisfaction is. It flows from Christ into us. It flows from us into others. He's saying, place me at the core of your life. 
place me at the center of your life. That's how you find the center. If you try to come to God any other way, what happens? If you try to enter God's presence by being good, shaping yourself up, first of all, it's never going to happen. You will always be driven and ridden by guilt and shame. You will be consumed because you are just going to work and work and work and work and sweat. And it will make you angry. It will make you anxious because you will never know where you stand with God. You will never know where you stand with one another. You will never, you will always be wondering, can I get this person's approval? Can I get that person's approval? Because you will bank your life on those things into your soul and it will corrode you. It will ruin you. That's what happens. Today, you may not be struck dead trying to come to God any other way. Back then, if you entered into the Holy of Holies, you could die. Today, you may not be struck dead, but what do we do today? We work and we labor and we try and try to gain some form of love or approval in our lives. And so instead of God, we replace God with other husbands. Jesus Christ is the lover of our souls, and we replace Jesus with what? A husband or a wife or a boss or some achievement, and we need it. We're willing to die for it. We treasure it. We're consumed by that, you see. It consumes you. You lose yourself. How many times do you hear people say, I need to find myself again? I've lost myself. Why? Because you've thrown yourself into these things. You've lost yourself. Your center is off. Your life is now out of orbit. That need, that desire, that's worship. Everybody here worships something. Everybody here worships something. It's a question of where your worship is placed. Is it misplaced? Has it been placed somewhere else that's corroding your heart, corroding your soul? You need a new center. You need a new motivation. That's what leads us to true worship. Jesus says here, God is spirit, and his people will worship him in spirit and truth. True worshipers. Everyone here worships, but true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. In verse 24, worshiping in spirit and truth. What does that mean? I'm going to explain to you very quickly, technically and practically. Technically, the Holy Spirit right? True worshipers worship in spirit. The Holy Spirit changes your heart, shapes your heart at the core. Without the Holy Spirit, none of what you hear, no word of God that you hear will ever impact you, will ever shape you. It's just going to sound like something nice, but it will never change you. It will never lead you to to displace yourself from, from bad worships, you see, from idols. The Holy Spirit activates your heart. The Holy Spirit brings you to life. The Holy Spirit changes your center to make you more sensitive to God's word. So when you hear God's word, that's the truth. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. You take it in, you can apply it. You see that? What that means practically or personally is this. At the heart of your idolatry is this. You replace God with other things. There are other men in your life. There are other spouses or other loves in your life. And the Bible says this will always lead to brokenness. It will always lead to emptiness, just like this woman. And so you're going to be filled with worry. Your heart is going to be hard. There's going to be anger and bitterness and jealousy. And then one day, what happens? One day you hear the word of God. Maybe it was a passage you've known all your life. You're going to hear the word of God. But on this day, the truth somehow got in. How did that happen? You're worshiping in spirit. God's spirit has entered God's Spirit has come in, has shaped you and changed you, activated, brought you from death to life. And then you hear God's Word, and now you're sensitive to God's Word. You're sensitive to truth. 
You're sensitive to the light. It's coming in. You've been hungry. The light has come in. You've been hungry. Now the bread, you're taking it in. You're thirsty. The water is there. There's life. What's life? God's beauty. God's character. God's kingliness. God's integrity. God's forgiveness. God's gentleness. His patience. His peace. It just floods you. What's going on there? That song that we sing in response, what's going on? God's spirit, it's probably one of many songs that you sung in your life. But this time, you find yourself, even as a Presbyterian, you're raising your hands, right? Why? Because something is moving you. You're worshiping. It's existential. Now you're feeling it. There's a sense of God's presence. It's more than knowing that God exists. Oh, this is grand. It's in you. You're feeling it. You're sensing it. Yes, there's a feeling and a sense to it. God's Spirit has softened your heart, but the truth of God, the Word of God, never happens apart. You you don't just feel emotions and you say, oh, I've been changed. The truth of God has come in. It's shaping your soul. It's torn through the hardness. Now, friends, the Holy Spirit is not like the force. It's not some sort of energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. We just sang it this morning. Three persons in one. The three persons of the Trinity. And because he's a person, he's a re- there's a relationship. That means you can do things to damage that relationship. You can blatantly rebel against your friend. You can blatantly rebel against your father. You can rebel against the Holy Spirit. You can resist him. But there are also so many more subtle ways. How, what are subtle ways that you distance yourself from your friends? You can overtly betray them, but you can also run from them. Avoid them. You know, I, I know I should be connecting, but you run the other way. There could be a lot of reasons for that. You can distance yourself from fellowship, distance yourself from the call. They're telling you something. You know it's right. You avoid it. Distance yourself from the commitments, the surrender. You grow cold. But when the Word of God hits you, the Holy Spirit has softened your heart. You get a sense of His love And then you start to respond, and you respond in prayer. You respond in trust. You respond and you say, there's conviction, there's repentance. That's the inward thing that's going on, but then those commitments that lead to active change. And when that happens, what's happening? Jesus is saying, you are worshiping in spirit and in truth. God's spirit is shaping you. You're worshiping in spirit. God's word is passively and actively shaping you as well. You're worshiping in truth. You're connecting with God. You're fellowshipping with God. You're running to God. There's confession. There's worship, you see. There's growth in wisdom. There's growth in clarity. You're hearing God's word again. You're, 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 you're singing praise again. You're confessing to him again. You're praying again. You're trusting again. It leads to integrity and commitment. If you look at your bulletin, nothing different. Nothing different than any other bulletin. Why do you think the movements are? Our worship service is designed in a way to walk you through those movements. That's what it's there for. It's intentional for that purpose. It's to lead you to integrity and commitment to Christ. So when you connect with God, yes, there is a sense of love and a sense of peace, but there's also a calling. There's a turning from sin. There's a sense of wisdom and clarity, where you need to go. Life is centered on Christ. And so you've got your will and your mind and your soul, your strength, 
you're worshiping. It goes against your natural desires. You didn't come in that way. Jesus says that is what he came to do. That is what he's seeking to do. Worshippers who will worship in spirit and in truth. A new center. It's the cure for our souls. The cure for our souls is love. It's not less than love. It's just a greater love. And it's available to everyone. It's available to anyone. It's free. It's the only thing that's powerful enough to release you from your other loves. C.S. Lewis says, the only way that you'll let go of one beauty is if you find a greater beauty. Jesus Christ is the unfailing greatest beauty worth you will let go. This woman lets it go. Leaves her water jar behind. All the shame, all the guilt, she runs back into the town. You see that? How? How do you get it? This entire passage, way in the beginning, it begins at Jacob's well. Later in verse 12, the woman asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? In the book of Genesis, Jacob met his wife where? He meets her at a well. He met Rachel at a well. Rachel is beautiful. The Bible says that. Rachel is beautiful, ethnically one with Jacob, sexually pure. In other words, she's acceptable. Pure, acceptable. Jacob's father, Isaac, met his wife at a well. Rebekah was met at a well. Rebekah was beautiful, ethnically pure, sexually pure. She's acceptable. Centuries later, later, by Jacob's well, you have Jesus Christ, the greater Jacob. Why is he the greater Jacob? He's the greater Isaac. Why is he the greater Isaac? He intentionally goes to Samaria, meets this woman at a well. But this woman, is she ethnically pure? No. Is she sexually pure? No. Is she morally pure? No. She's outcast, out of every ring, unacceptable. Why? Jesus Christ who is pure. Jesus Christ, who is holy. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Came to make she who is unacceptable, acceptable. You get a new center because you get a new love. You see that? On the cross, Jesus cries out what? Oh, I'm in pain. Is that what he says? I don't want to denigrate what he says. He says, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are you saying? He says, I thirst. And he says, you've forsaken me. My God, my God, I'm thirsting for you. You are the true center and I'm thirsting because I'm alone and I'm burning up in torment, drying up. My soul longs for God and he's gone. He has forsaken me. I'm outcast. My God has departed from me. I have no center. I have no temple. And because I have no center and my, no temple, my life is out of orbit. I'm blowing up. I'm disoriented. I'm suffocating. I can't breathe. I'm thirsting. And I can't find it anywhere else. He is the true temple. And so I'm burning up. I'm thirsting. I am in hell. Separated from God. Completely separated from God. That means he's in hell. My body and my soul are crying out for God. He is my living water, and yet he's gone. And why? Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you could be accepted. Jesus Christ was abandoned so that you could be loved. Jesus Christ was disowned so that you could be adopted. Jesus Christ died alone so you will never be alone. 
in Jesus Christ, you have every form of love to the greatest degree. He scaled the heights of Calvary and descended the depths of hell for you. There's no boundary that he did not cross, that he did not cross. There's no boundary he would not cross. There's no, how do you know? He proved it because there was no boundary he did not cross for you. You see that? That's the end of your thirst. If you believe that, that, if you believe that he did that for you, that's the end of your thirst. You have new life. You found a new center. Your job can't do that for you. Your spouse can't do that for you. Mothers, your children cannot do that for you. They can't. You know why? Because they're broken too. Their center is off too. No matter how much you sacrifice for them, no matter how much they sacrifice for you, they have needs, they have demands, they are broken. They cannot quench that thirst in an eternal way that only Jesus Christ can quench. On the cross, there is your worth. There is the meaning. There is the validation. There is the significance. There is the joy to know that the creator of the universe, the one who governs and sustains the world at his hand, is dying and pierced his hands for you. There is the love that you've been looking for all your life. He will never exploit you. He will never use you. He will never abandon you or throw you away. He will love you and love you and love you. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's what God says. What will break you free from your idols? But to reorient to a new center, the true center, only by the cross. If you look at this woman, she runs back to the town. That's her epilogue. To the very people she avoided because of her brokenness. But if she wasn't broken, she never would have met Jesus. What brokenness are you suffering or enduring right now? Maybe it was something you did that creates guilt and shame. It's that brokenness that can lead you to Christ. You see that? For her, it shaped and changed her life. 2,000 years later, she's recognized as the first missionary for the church, and we're still telling stories and talking about this woman. She's at six men, dying of fatigue and thirst, and Jesus becomes the seventh man. Seven represents perfection and completion and satisfaction and peace and rest. If it can happen to her, If it can happen to her, it can happen to all of us. It can happen to you. If it can redeem her, surely it's a spring, it's a fountain, it can redeem you. Through your brokenness, you can be led to have an encounter with Christ and then worship in spirit and in truth. Friends, it's my prayer here that the gospel will shape you and be that engine and the fountain in your life that will spring you into everlasting peace and joy no matter what the circumstance, no matter what you've done, no matter where you came from. That's my, that's my hope and prayer. Let that be your hope and prayer. Let it empower you. Let's pray.